the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 10th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It's two and a half years since uh, the collapse of government in Northern Ireland. Talks will intensify this week in the hope of finding a solution to what has been a political impasse with the DUP and Sinn Féin failing to find ground on a number of issues. It was the controversy over the renewable heat scheme or the cash for ash scandal that triggered the crisis towards the end of 2016. But Northern Ireland has not had an executive since January 17 and uh, disagreement over an Irish language act, same-sex marriage and how to deal with legacy issues remain some of the stumbling blocks. Let's talk about this with Jim Wells who's a DUP MLA for South Down and a very good morning to you Jim Wells and thanks for taking the time to join us this morning. Are you optimistic that a solution can be found? Well Michael, first of all can I say hello to the gentleman I met at the new election counties and have a listener to your programme oh. who calls him the Church of Ireland nationalist and I always said I would say hello to him because you have other listeners north of the border as well. Very good. I think yes, to be honest we are fairly optimistic because um, the talks have been rather workmanlike, as it were. There's been uh, no falling out. There's been no great disagreement. There's one or two straws in the wind, which I think may offer hope. And I think both parties, uh, both Sinn Féin and the DUP, got a very clear message around the doors in both elections that there's a huge yearning amongst the people of Northern Ireland for everyone to get back to Stormont and have devolved government. Mm, and would it make a difference to the lives of people? Are, are the people in Northern Ireland suffering because of a lack of government? Well, I think uh, there's a lot less problems than people had perceived would happen. I think where where things are suffering is there's a huge number of infrastructure projects, big ticket items, which would bring a lot of investment and work to the province, which are sitting on stocks, as it were, because of a lack of an executive. And I think the construction industry in particular would be very keen Mm. for devolved government to return. And also, obviously, the ongoing negotiations on Brexit, I think it's important that there's an official Northern Ireland representation in, in terms of an input to those. Mm. I think those are the two main issues. But, I mean, the province, actually, Michael, is, is booming. Um, the last statistics show that unemployment is the lowest ever recorded at 2.7%. The number of people in work um, is highest ever. And the number of economically active at 71.3% is the highest ever. Uh, I so suppose that begs like the question, is devolved government necessary? And could Northern Ireland be governed from London? Uh, but there have been other issues at, at the same time. I mean, there's uh, the abuse victims who are, are waiting for their payments uh, that are long overdue at this stage. There's been problems with planning applications, uh, planning for an incinerator turned down and uh, the north-south interconnector called into question as a result of not having an executive in place. Yeah, and those are the big infrastructure items I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and obviously, to some extent, Karen Bradley has, Bradley, Bradley has been using the lack of an executive to put pressure on the parties and also to say that the decisions that could have been made uh, that haven't because there's been no uh, power sharing. Though, of course, she has the power to step in and do any of these had she wanted to. But I think everyone agrees that it's better for Northern Ireland to have some form of devolution. Uh, the country's got through much better than people expected. But I, I do think in the interest of good government and progress and stability, of course, mm. it is much better to have 
uh, some form of, of government. Because one thing is clear that 99% of the people do not want to return to the instability and violence that beleaguered Northern Ireland for so many decades. If uh, government is restored, uh, would you expect Arlene Foster to step aside as First Minister, given that it was her mismanagement of the renewable heat scheme uh, that led to this crisis and indeed to the loss of £480 million? Michael, make it absolutely clear. The uh, RHI scheme, as it's known, was the excuse for Sinn Féin to pull out. It wasn't the reason. The reason was that the hardliners in the Republican movement demanded they pull out. Secondly, one of their demands was that Arlene Foster should step down. They have no right to dictate to us who our leader is. In the same way, we wouldn't dictate to them whether or not they have Mary Lou Macdonald. So the, rea- the reality is, no, we're not going to be dictated to there. But what I would say is that there are some interesting proposals on the table on things like welfare reform, which could act as a breakthrough. Uh, for the talks process. Uh, and I, therefore, I think the mood music is, is good. And also, of course, the party leaders move into action this week. And that will be very significant. Up to now, it's been uh, sort of the backbenchers uh, and the nominees who've been doing the talking. Now, the, the, the big guns, as we would call them, are moving into action. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if progress can be made, because I think everybody has got a signal from the community. They want these talks to work. Mm. And uh, I take it there needs to be compromise on both sides and uh, that the DUP may compromise on same-sex marriage, let's say, and that Sinn Féin may... In a word, no. No, no, no. Um, We're totally opposed to that. Um, uh, That that will not be on the table uh, as far as discussions are concerned. We we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that's the way it has to stay, uh, and that we have no intention of allowing uh, Sinn Féin to use this as a bargaining tool. Mm. Uh, If... The party leadership disagrees and uh, agrees to introducing same-sex marriage. What would mean that mean for the future uh, of Jim Wells in the Democratic Unionist Party? Well, Jim Wells couldn't stay in the party in those circumstances, but Jim Wells would have that problem because the party made it absolutely clear that this is not on the table uh, for negotiation. And we have a very clear mandate for that, that things have gone as far as we're prepared to go. We're not going to go down the same route as the Irish Republic and uh, we believe in the tr- tradition of marriage between one man and one woman and that's the way it's going to stay. Uh, undoubtedly there's many men married to men and many women married to women in, in Northern Ireland. Not in Northern Ireland. Not, no, there's not because once they step foot in Northern Ireland they become civil partners. Mm. There's and no status of, of That's of the, the, the status. Ireland. Undoubtedly though they've come across uh, the border and got married here. Yes, but once they return into the United Kingdom, into Northern Ireland, they resort to being civil partners and any legal documentation in Northern Ireland, they are treated exactly as that. Mm, as second-class citizens, they would say. Certainly not, because they've got all the benefits of civil partnerships, uh, all the legal and financial uh, protections. And, I mean, it's a, it is a very important Rubicon for the, for the party. We will not be changing our views on this. Remember, Michael, last mm. year in Northern Ireland, there were 8,300 marriages in Northern Ireland and 91 civil partnerships. The ratio is 88 to 1. We're not going to change the whole understanding of marriage and family life in Northern Ireland for less than 1% of the population. All right. And what about the Irish Language Act? I think highly unlikely. It's a very, very unpopular 
proposal the last time. It, it simply could not be sold within mm. the unionist community. I've never seen the intensity of opposition as it did to Irish language. But, of course, we're not opposed to what we call the Culture Act, mm. in which all languages, including the really important ones in Northern Ireland, mm. which are Polish and Lithuanian, where there are far, far more Polish speakers than there are Irish, and certainly much more, yeah. more Lithuanians. Yeah, but if they're born in Ireland, uh, their children are born in Ireland... Uh, they're not born in Ireland, they're born in the United Kingdom, Michael, not in Ireland. But, well, you're Irish, aren't right? No, I'm certainly not, Michael, not one drop of me. No, we're part of the United Kingdom, we're British. They were born within the United Kingdom, and mm. we respect the Lithuanians and the Poles and the Chinese, and they have needs, and they have their culture which needs to be protected, and we want to put all cultures on an equal basis, including the Irish. Mm. Uh, do you not call yourself Irish at all? No, absolutely you, not. E- even though you're born in Northern Ireland? No, I'm born in Northern Ireland, which means, I mean, as an Alaskan and Canadian. I was born in Northern Ireland of a family of stock here from British settlers, mm. uh, both Presbyterians and Anglicans. There's been no intermarriage with uh, Native Irish. And I'm very proud to say I'm from Northern Ireland. I support Northern Ireland football. And we had a good result on Saturday. Well done in, in Tallinn. And we, we have a proud tradition and a culture which are entitled. You're entitled to call yourself Irish because you mm. live in Drogheda. Mm. I'm entitled mm. to call myself British because I live in Banbridge. Oh, absolutely. And I respect that. But I, I think people in Manchester or Birmingham would probably... Uh, call you Irish, would they? Yeah, and they would call Alaskans Canadians, but they would be wrong, wouldn't they? <laughs> okay. the, reality, the reality is we are de facto British. I carry a British passport. I speak mm. English. My children are British, and I'm proud to use sterling uh, as, as my currency mm. and post my letters in a box that says Elizabeth Regina. So therefore, British through and through, and I'm very mm. proud of that. And certainly you will never get me lured into the trap of conversation. Oh, no, I know. I just, I, and I mean it, honestly, and I don't mean it in any disrespectful way, but if you were in Manchester, they'd say you're Northern Irish or Irish because you're Northern Irish. Well, I wouldn't Irish. mind them calling yeah. me Northern Irish, but mm. I certainly would <laughs> very opposed to them calling me Irish because I'm not. I mean, it's mm. as simple as that. Any more than somebody in life is British. I mean, I was born within the United Kingdom. I was British as somebody in Basingstoke or Birmingham, mm. and long may it continue for many centuries. All right, and uh, I suppose uh, this brings us uh, to the issue of Rockall and uh, what defines borders uh, and that sort of thing. It's not that long ago since we were speaking to you, Jim Wells, uh, about uh, some fishermen uh, from Northern Ireland who had uh, been arrested for illegally fishing in the Bay of Dundalk. Uh, you were very critical of that. I, I take it you're equally critical of the Scottish authorities who are threatening to impound Irish vessels if they find them fishing uh, within 12 nautical miles of Rockall. Well, Rockall, of course, is British territory. It has been claimed, I think it was 1965. Um, we <laughs> SAS troops landed and occupied it for 30 days and stuck up the Union Jack. Just to, In 1957, I think it was. Uh, but, well, I was yeah. we, 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 but that's even longer then, so it's even more British. But is that it? Is that all you need to do, uh, is to put up a British flag uh, to call it your own? To make claim well, to it? We, we already had claimed it long before that particular exercise. It has been deemed to be British for centuries. Um, if the Irish wish to fish within those waters and pay the appropriate yeah. uh, fees yeah, and seek permission, they can. Listen, they Dundalk Bay is Irish, isn't it? Yes, and, and as you know, that there were uh, British trawlers were arrested for, for fishing in yes, that area. Yes, but you, 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 you said that shouldn't have happened. Because there was a, a binding agreement made between the two nations, a, 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 a voice song, I think it's called, it's a very difficult phrase to mm-hmm. pronounce. 
But there was an agreement which allowed British, i.e. Northern Ireland trawlers to fish in that bay. That was mm. reneged upon. There's never been any agreement that allows Irish trawlers to fish within British waters at Rockall. It's a fascinating place, isn't it, given that uh, there has been so much uh, dispute over uh, who uh, calls it part of uh, their territory. I mean, it is a rock. It is uninhabitable. Uh, and I was reading about uninhabitable rocks in uh, the Irish Times today. Dean Ruxon gives a, a very interesting insight into who may claim ownership of a rock hall. Uh, and he cites the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, which uh, was put together in 1982. And that states, rocks which cannot sustain human habitation or economic life of their own shall, shall have no exclusive economic zone or continental shelf. Uh, so it seems as though it's impossible to lay claim to Rockall. Well, we're not, we haven't signed up to that. And uh, we're, we're perfectly content that having put, put uh, troops on it for 30 days, we've mm. proved it can be inhabited, albeit with some difficulty, I would say. Yeah. And I mean, the Irish wish to, to, to make us an offer and to reach an agreement to, to pay to fish in British waters, that's fine. But they can't just unilaterally uh, sort of sail in and take mm. our fish. Well, I, think, uh, I, I, think, like I think in 1975, somebody went uh, out to Rockall and put up a, a, a tricolour for a number of days. But the Irish government is in laying claim to Rockall. But it is laying claim to fishing rights uh, as are uh, a number of uh, countries. Uh, the Danes and the Finns are also uh, involved in this uh, and there's quartpartite talks uh, between London, Dublin, Reykjavik and Copenhagen and they've been ongoing for years apparently. And if these reach a certain conclusion we'll adhere to it. But in the meanwhile it's as much part of the United Kingdom as Rochdale or, <laughs> or Rothermere, or any, anywhere in the United Kingdom, it is British territory. And the Irish didn't seek permission before they moved into fish in our waters. Uh, that itself is something that's to be deprecated. And, you know, at the end of the day, Rockhall is as British as any other part of the United Kingdom, and uh, the Irish have no right to move in and fish in our waters. You know, the Irish government says it does, that the fishermen do. Uh, and now we're talking about a, a disputed territory, and disputed territories can end up being very serious things. Uh, do you believe uh, that this uh, is something to be concerned about? No, I mean, it's a very minor issue. You're talking about one or two trawlers infringing upon British territorial waters. We're not going to have a cod war or a squid war, whatever mm. it's called, over this. I mean, people will get over it. The Irish will get the message that you don't come into British waters without permission, and life will move on. Well, I'm not sure that it is that simple. I mean, it is a, a small issue, but people will say uh, you don't come into Ireland and lay claim to the country and then eventually end up with six counties of it or just decide to put a British flag o on a piece of rock and decide it's your own. Well, the six counties, I assume you refer to that part of our mm. Majesty's United Kingdom and was Northern Ireland. The majority of people in, the, in those six counties wish to remain British. Uh, similarly, uh, Rockhall has been identified by the British government as being part of our country. Um, at the end of the day... But not by the United Nations. Uh, there's a dispute then over fishing rights uh, and uh, the Dublin government, uh, the Finnish government and the Danish government all believe they have a, a right to fish there. Yeah, and, and until that's sorted out, it remains de facto British. And we, I mean, we're at the table, we're quite interested to, you know, to talk about it, but at the end of the day, you don't come into somebody's property without their permission. Hmm. <laughs> uh, do, should I ask the obvious question? What's that? Well, I mean, that happened 800 years ago or so, didn't it? <laughs> yes, and what about the, the previous invasion and the previous invasion?
so on. You know, the reality is that uh, the British weren't the first in, uh, people to settle in Ireland, and if you go back far enough, the current population of Celts shouldn't be there either. Now, the reality is that uh, lines are drawn, uh, maps are drawn around groups of homogeneous people who regard themselves as a particular identity. And the reality is that the majority of people in Northern Ireland regard themselves as British. And the point I would make, Mike, is mm-hmm. that if living under the, oppression, under the British oppression is so bad, why have the nationalist community flourished and prospered for the last 90-odd years in that situation? How many of them have left? They haven't left because life is good under, under British rule. There's lots and lots of benefits of being part of a much larger, wealthier country the fifth largest economy in the world. And why have so many people from the Irish Republic moved to live in Northern Ireland if it's been so bad? Okay, interesting questions. Uh, we leave our listeners to mull over them and thank you for joining us this morning. That's okay. Jim Wells, DUP, MLA for Southdown. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as you probably heard last week, Ireland is uh, the third highest uh, cocaine-using country in Europe. We follow Britain and Spain, and uh, there is a direct link between the consumption of cocaine and gangland violence in this country this and across Europe. This is according to Michael O'Sullivan, who is from Ireland, but he's the head of the EU Drugs Task Force. And he says uh, that cocaine is the fuel of organised crime. Let's talk uh, about this because it has local repercussions with Labour Party councillor P.O. Smith who's come into studio with us morning, this morning. Uh, the report last week was also saying uh, that the cocaine business, if you like, has been uberized and that getting a deal is as easy as calling a taxi in this country. Uh, what's your experience of that? It's true. Uh, it's true. <clears throat> getting a deal in any type of drug really is, is so easy now and uh, the perception probably in the public's mind about drug dealers uh, is people hanging on street corners. Well, it's going more and more now even on the internet where people can uh, can order specific types of drugs, particularly synthetic type of drugs. <clears throat> so it is getting very easy for, for people to get their hands on various types of drugs, including cocaine. And uh, in Drada, we've got a significant problem with cocaine, as we have mm-hmm. it across the, the country as well. And if you look at a cohort of people between the ages of 15 and 34, uh, probably around, I, I would estimate it's probably about 300 cocaine users, active cocaine weekly users in the, in, in the town, and that's just the town of Drogheda. But looking at the report, in the last year, 3, 3% of people in that age group have used in the last year, and in Drogheda, there's probably about 3,700 people in that age group. Uh, so that's 100 people in the last year alone <clears throat> who have, have used cocaine. Uh, cocaine can be street value of up to 100 euros a gram. Most people in a week would use a gram of cocaine. Mm. And if you look at that over a 12-month period, that's probably around six, 700,000 euros going into the coffers of various drugs gangs. Mm. And that's just one drug. Yeah, and that's in one town. And that's, that's in one town. That's uh, the fellas uh, who are putting us all at risk shooting at each other, I'm sure. It is, yeah. And mm. I mean, like, you know, you can you can look at ecstasy, you can look at MDMA. If mm. you look at ecstasy, it's... it's uh, Another increase there in relation to young people taking that. that that's about eight, eight euros a tablet. Most people will take two tablets in in one session. Uh, and again, when you add in coke, we're second in the league of MDMA ecstasy use. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And we're up there uh, in uh, I think it's uh, the top six countries uh, in terms of cannabis use. Oh, definitely, cannabis will still be the the uh, most prevalent drug in 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 the country. Uh, I said before mm. to you that it's it's normalised now. That's not to say that it's acceptable, mm. but it's normalised in some people's minds to actually take it the same way. Some people go out to the pub and have a pint. 
Mm. Uh, but the reality is that there there is no link between, and we spoke about this before in relation to somebody paying uh, 100 euros for a gram of cocaine and what happened in the M1 business park or what mm. happens in estates in the town where people have been terrorised, where innocent members of families are mm. having their houses burned out. Uh, but the reality is that when an individual pays 100 euros for mm. cocaine, they are part of what's going on uh, in this intimidation. Is that the fault of the person who's using it, who's paying the 100 euro, or is it a bad law that doesn't recognise what people want? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, there are... I mean, this is there, a, a growing a, business. Uh, you talk about that European anti-drugs group. Uh, in 2018, they seized 16 tonnes of cocaine. Uh, and up to May of this year, uh, they've seized 19 tonnes in the first five months compared to 16 tonnes over the 12 months. We spoke before about the demand. There is a massive demand for illegal drugs mm. in this country and across Western Europe and across the world in general. That's a fact. Yeah. We need to have a debate in this country and it's actually starting now at the minute. I've seen mm. recently in the Irish Times there's been a number of different articles from two different That's groups right. of doctors. Yeah. And yeah, we spoke about this with Gene O'Kenny on the programme last week who firmly believes that all drugs should be legalised. Yeah, uh, there's an in- interesting... If you look at the UK and look at Holland and look at uh, Luxembourg and Mm. Denmark, for example, Mm. they have uh, specific centres for people who uh, inject heroin. And the heroin is actually provided by the state. And they target a cohort of people who have been involved in serious crime in in the city centres. And what they've seen over a period of time is the crime rate dropping. Mm. Uh, So... You know, we don't have that at this point in time, yeah. number one. Number well, two, when you're using heroin, you need to get an awful lot of money. And if you're using heroin, you're probably not in a high-paid job. I mean, I think that happens, but it's very exceptional. So generally, people people are raising the money for their habit through illegal methods. Uh, quite often, women end up being prostitutes and men break into houses at night. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And there's an awful lot of abuse of women in, in this game. Hmm. You know, unfortunately, that's the, that's the reality of things. Uh, but... The question is for us as a society, you know, how do we address this? Because yeah. basically we spend a significant amount of money trying to stop the supply coming into the country, which mm. has failed. Yeah. Let's be honest with that. We're not going to stop And all it. sorts of poisons are, are, are coming in as part of this product, which mm. could be regularised mm. uh, and uh, made sure that it's fit for consumption if you do want to consume it. Uh, and uh, the uh, illegal crime... Uh, wouldn't have a, a market anymore. I mean, these are the arguments uh, in favour of legalising drugs. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at it as a business, as mm. you said earlier on, and it is a business, if you look at the, the cartels in, in uh, Mexico and uh, other areas, and if mm. you look at even the drugs gangs themselves, it's a hierarchy, it's a business, mm. as they see it. Yeah. It may not be one that we find acceptable and, and likeable, but it, that the reality is mm. they treat it as a business. So in terms of a business, then, you've got supply and demand. And, and it's worth billions uh, that could be taxed. It's worth billions. If you look at Colorado mm. and America, for yeah. example, uh, the big cigarette companies now have gone into cannabis, right. and they've mm-hmm. pushed the Mexican drug cartels out of the mm. uh, out of the state in relation mm. to because it's one of the American states where cannabis has been legalized. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. the cartels mm-hmm. can't compete with the big corporations. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, there's a lesson, I think, to be learned there. This debate has to take place in society. Well, I mean, you do have to ask yourself: Are the people wrong? Uh, you've just come out of an election, and I don't think a politician would ever say that the people are wrong. The people know what they want, and they vote for the politicians that they uh, 
believe are, are worthy of office and they're always right. Uh, and if the people are, are voting with their 100 euro buying their gram of cocaine or whatever it is, uh, are they wrong? And that's the first mm. question that needs mm. to be asked if they're mm. doing it in so but many I, I, numbers. To be honest with you, I think they are wrong. Uh, yeah. I think they are wrong because uh, like when I talk, when, I, when you look at cannabis, for example, mm. and they said it's normalised, now cannabis is a very dangerous drug. Mm. I mean, cannabis has a number of different uh, categories attached to it and particularly for a young young person, the mm. average age forced use of cannabis is between 13 and 15 years of age. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the young brain is developing at that stage and it doesn't stop developing until they're 25 years of age mm. and cannabis can have a very significant negative impact on that brain development and some some young people will have the effects of cannabis use for the rest of their life mm. uh, for example it affects your circadian rhythm so your sleep mm. pattern can go for certain people not for everyone but for certain people if you take 100 people who start using drugs they just kind of recreationally or whatever 20 of those is going to become addicted to drugs that's the reality of it. And that's mm. going to have knock-on effect on their life, their potential, uh, their family, their jobs, or lack of in the future. And uh, maybe for... Does that mean that we're living in a nation of drug addicts? Because there are two arguments, two sides to the argument, if you like, uh, and that's been articulated, as you say, by the different sets of doctors. Mm. One set of doctors writing to the Irish Times said that the use of cannabis can lead to psychosis and detrimental and we shouldn't uh, sleepwalk into legalising cannabis. The other set of doctors said, no... That's not true. 90% of people who use cannabis uh, see no adverse uh, effects and uh, that uh, it, it would uh, be of benefit to legalise it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say 90% see no adverse effects. I mean, there no, is... No, but that is what the doctor said. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and I would dispute mm-hmm. some of that, that comment as well yeah. because a lot of the research, research does point to the fact that there is adverse effects. Now, the percentage of those effects is, is and, and the effect of those effects is it's what's debatable. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, the point about it is that if you've got 100 people who use cannabis and 20 then become addicted to it, you've got a societal problem there because mm. basically you've got people who aren't functioning well, uh, you've got family units being affected, you've got people who are going to uh, drug dealers to pay okay. money and mm. you've got a knock-on effect. So there. then the next question. Uh, if you have 20 people who use cannabis and so many of them have adverse uh, effects, uh, does it make any difference that it's illegal? Uh, will more people try cannabis if it's made legal or will fewer be able to get it if it's made legal? In my opinion, uh, I would look at legalising it uh, for recreational use and uh, I do that on the basis that it it takes the money away from the drugs gangs. Mm. Now, Professor Bobby Smith in Trinity would argue against that. He would say that uh, it would make it more available, Mm. more people would try it and hence the problem then would increase. And what about the strength of it? Uh, Because that was one of the points I was putting to Gino Kenny last week, uh, that if you did legalise cannabis, uh, well, you'd still have the illegal market because it wouldn't be strong enough. Uh, It would be a little bit like wanting a bottle of whiskey and the only thing you can buy is a bottle of beer. Mm. Well, in Colorado they have uh, you can go into a shop in Colorado in America and you can see the various types and you can Mm see the various strengths you can mm. you can actually trace back where the product was actually made mm. so it then becomes a personal choice for the individual but that's set by regulation that's set by regulation yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, uh, and it can be as strong or as weak as the government decides yes. or the regulator yes. decides so yeah. uh, i would have thought that it wouldn't be because we hear that uh, what's available now is dynamite uh, and uh, 10 times stronger I think than would have been the case in the 70s and the 80s so uh, I'd imagine there'd be a move to try and bring down the strength of cannabis uh, well there may well be but I mean it's like alcohol I mean if you if you take uh, even just 
Smyrna vodka, for example, you can mm. have uh, 44% or 37% or 38% proof. Mm. I mean, there's mm. different strengths available in relation to just alcohol we find acceptable. Uh, and there is negative consequences there in relation to psychological health and mm. physical health. Mm. And we as taxpayers... I suppose you can choose to drink one bottle or two bottles well, yeah, of vodka. Yeah, you know, and, and a lot of yeah. people unfortunately mm. do, you know. Yeah. Uh, mm. So, But I mean, the reality is, like, if you, again, look at Colorado, mm. and I don't have all of the facts and figures now in relation yeah. to, to the outcomes from, from their uh, legalisation of it over there, but I mean, what they do do know is that the crime rates have dropped significantly. Mm. The arrest rates have dropped dropped significantly. Uh, money has been collected and poured back into the community in relation to treatments, treatment mm. centres, etc. So there is an argument made in relation to that. Uh, but I mean, for a lot of people, when the issue arises in Drada, we hear of a shooting mm. or an intimidation or a burning of a house or whatever it is. And we mm. had one there last week in 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 in, in town, a totally innocent family and some an individual who could have lost a life, maybe two individuals could have lost a life. And that raises awareness mm. of what's going on. And then all of a sudden things die down and people get on with their daily life mm. and they just think nothing's happening. But this report indicates even that this is happening. And if you mm. look at the well, if you look at what that chief European cop said, uh, it's uh, the fuel for gangland crime. Oh, it is. A- and it's cocaine, I think, uh, that is at the centre of uh, the ongoing feud in Drogheda. There's reports this morning uh, on one particular individual uh, who is uh, a key player in all of this. Uh, the Gardaí themselves said that they were bracing themselves for him coming out of prison. Uh, I paraphrase, uh, but worse to that effect, uh, that they were concerned uh, about the impact that might have on escalating the feud when he was released. He was released a, a number of weeks ago uh, and not much has happened, uh, but apparently he's been off uh, on holiday in Italy mm. and came back the weekend. Mm. Uh, are you concerned now? Well, I am concerned. I think what's going to happen here eventually is, OK, the feud will go on for a while. There'll be some more uh, bad instance. I think what will happen is that, and I'm talking here now just from a purely... Uh, opinionated piece. I think that within those sections of the community a rational argument is going to take place about the effect it's having on the business and there'll be some type of an agreement reached where the violence and the escalation will go down. Uh, They'll be under the radar. They'll be making a fortune every year and a lot of the people in the town will just go on doing their daily daily life and their attention will focus on something else and uh, we'll be in a war state in years to come. Mm. Because basically the, the, the state, and when I say the state, I mean successive governments, mm. do not take the, the drugs issue seriously. They mm. don't. And the guards will be in here every Tuesday listing out the number of burglaries that have uh, occurred in the town and elsewhere mm. because mm. people need to feed their habits. Yeah, look, to be honest with you, sometimes I think the guards get disillusioned uh, because, I mean, it's amazing when you look at even the recent uh, feuds in, in, in Dublin, mm. the same things keep coming out from, from the guards in terms of lack of resources and lack of powers, etc. Uh, the people at the levers of power, I think, who sit above the cabinet table, they lose contact with what happens in communities. And they see the drugs issue not as a significant problem. And they are going to get a bite in the arse at some stage in the future. Because basically, if you look at around, <clears throat> you look at Mexico and places mm-hmm. like that, they're nearly that's nearly a failed state at this point in time. And if drugs cartels and drugs gangs can amass fortunes on a, on, on a regular basis, uh, they can buy power, and and that's the reality of it. And okay. you know we have to address this issue. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for coming into <clears throat> us uh, this morning, Labour Party Councillor Pio Smith. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. More people in County Meath have to leave the county in order to go to work on a, a daily basis than any other corner of the country. This is according uh, to Peter Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West and uh, the leader of the Ain2 party. Peter Tobin wants uh, to know that if uh, transport can be improved uh, and if uh, there can be move, some move uh, to restoring the Navin rail line. He joins us on the line now and a very good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us here this morning. Uh, your argument is that because more people are having to commute, they should have the services to commute with. Yeah, so this morning, uh, more people left Meath to work uh, than actually stayed in Meath to work. That happens in no other county in the country whatsoever. And Meath people commute further distances than any other county in, in the country. And yet, Navan uh, and most of the, of the county has no rail line whatsoever. And indeed, Navan is the biggest town in the country without a rail line. Uh, and that makes it very difficult, obviously, for people to get to work. It means people are battling uh, traffic between two and three hours a day. Mm. And that has a serious effect on people's lives because they're dropping their kids off maybe at half seven at a crash, uh, and they're battling to get back before six o'clock so they can pick them up. And they're wrecked tired for the, the hour they have with their children before they put them to bed uh, as well. Uh, but it also costs massively. Uh, a person living in Kells, for example, maybe working in Tala, mm. would spend two and a half grand a year just in tolls uh, in that particular commute. And anybody knows that's using the M50, even people from Drada or from, from uh, uh, Nace, etc., mm. knows that the M50 is so congested currently that if there's any kind of accident on it or bad weather, the M50 grinds to a halt. And all of a sudden, you have tens of thousands of people who are not going to make it to, uh, to work on time. <clears throat> so we're also saying that, you know, the fact that you have so many cars stuck in the road and the lack of proper public transport, it's leading to massive pollution. Uh, Ireland is under fierce pressure with regards to its CO2 emissions. Indeed, next year, it's understood that Ireland will pay a fine between 400 million and 600 million euros due to the fact that we haven't got it together to reduce our CO2 emissions uh, whatsoever in this country. In the last two years, Seen, has seen a rise in those. <clears throat> so what we're in aim to is saying that you can actually fix a number of problems in this country with regards to congestion and the cost of congestion to family life and to businesses, with regards to uh, making sure that people can circulate around the, mm. the east, the mid-east area properly. There, there, there's little uh, hope, uh, I think, uh, of any uh, progress on uh, rail line to Navan uh, because uh, it's been uh, excluded from any of uh, the long-term planning. Uh, but when you talk about people commuting from Kells to Tala to go to work. I take it that a lot of those people would have grown up in Tala uh, but decided to move to Kells because of house prices. So when they did, there wasn't a a rail line in place. I mean, there hasn't been a rail line in place since the 1950s. So this is by by choice but for a lot of people. There's whole swathes of meat that bought houses on the basis of a a promise by Fianna Fáil that a rail line would be built. Uh, So in other words, Fianna Fáil, if you can remember correctly, said that a rail line would be up and running and functional in meat by 2015. Uh, and I know people in Johnstown and in Kells and in Trim uh, and the surrounding areas who bought on that basis. But you do make a valid point there, mm. Michael. There's, it, there's, and I've said this to you before, there's a wave of people moving west currently because of house prices increases, not because of a choice for them in, in any way. I know people who can't afford, uh, couldn't afford five, for three or four years ago to live in East Meath, moved to Navan, then moved to Kells and are now living in Cavan. So because of the government's uh, housing sprawl policy, we have this commuter hell building up uh, amongst uh, 
so many families across the country, and it's not on the basis of choice whatsoever. So we're saying that, at the very least, this okay. government needs to put the project back on the feasibility mm. studies. And I think it probably is wrong to suggest that it was something people chose to do, that they chose these long commutes, yeah. but it's a decision that they made knowingly. No, well, first of all, a decision is usually an option. Uh, these people don't have an option. Indeed, on a daily basis, I'm dealing with people who cannot afford the 1,600, €1,700 Euros it's now costing to rent a three-bedroom to four-bedroom house in the likes of Navin. And these people are not deciding to move further west. They're forced to move further west. Um, but this uh, issue can be resolved if we design a proper public transportation system. And indeed, it's not just the rail line, it's the bus services. I know in Trim, for example, you know, people have had a very unreliable bus service there for a long period of time. Um, and if you're waiting for a bus and that bus is 40 minutes late, you know, on two or three occasions, if you're late for work, you're going to have to stop using that bus and get back in, uh, into private transportation. Towns and villages such as Rathmaline, uh, up to Clonmelon, hardly have a bus rolling into the town whatsoever mm. uh, during the day. And that's and if it, you decide to use a, a county as a, a bedroom, and uh, to a large degree, that is uh, what County Meath is. It's a motel, if you like, for a, a lot of people who it's a sleep there. County and and it, 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 well, it has been designed by dormitory uh, mm. to be a dormitory county. Sleep there and go to work elsewhere. And maybe that's okay, but as you say... Uh, Perhaps if that's the decision you make in terms of planning, then you need to provide transport for people to be able to do that uh, efficiently. Uh, but the other solution, of course, is to bring jobs to the people. Exactly. So in other words, the motorway, the M3 runs two ways, and yet it's only, it's only really used in one direction in the morning and in the opposite direction in the evening. If we could actually get proper jobs into this county, uh, we wouldn't have the needs uh, for that uh, uh, commuter hell every single morning. And indeed, if, if people wanted evidence to see that Meath is treated differently with regards to jobs, Meath has the lowest business rate space in the country per capita. That means, you know, all your businesses that are on uh, the main streets of, of the towns and villages in Meath, they'll all pay rates, um, but the, the cumulative amount that they pay is less per person than any other county in the country, mm. uh, which shows you that's, uh, that's really hurting uh, uh, with regards to jobs. And so, leads into the council being underfunded. Uh, and again, Meath has a 60% average funding uh, than, 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 than other counties uh, in the country, which then uh, leads into the fact that you know, green spaces and playgrounds and roads and other facilities that are needed on a daily basis by citizens uh, are not being provided for. So all of this comes down to a decision by government to make Meath into a dormitory county and not provide the necessary housing, necessary uh, uh, jobs, and necessary transportation to make life functionable and decent uh, in the county. And that's all we're looking for. Okay. And, and it's not just me that suffers mm. as a result of this. As I said, mm. people coming in from, from the M1 and the M7 and the, M, uh, the M11, they're all suffering because the M50 is stuffed with traffic. Let's start taking some of the traffic off by the, the proper development of public transport around okay. the country. Yeah, and even right. towns like Enfield, for example. Mm. Enfield Briefly is not is. considered mm. to be a commuter town uh, with regard to its pricing by Erin Rodairn. So, you know, Maynooth right beside it has a, a far lower daily commute into Dublin uh, charge, but Enfield is considered uh, to be a long-distance uh, yeah. uh, journey. Just like Laytown and Balbriggan. Okay, exactly. got, got to leave it there. Thank you indeed uh, Thank for you. joining us uh, this morning. Patrick Tobin, uh, the leader of the Ain2 party, is a TD for Meath West. 
Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everyone that's listening in today. Mary is one of those listeners and she's wondering why you give so much airtime to Jim Jim Wells. She feels that he just says the same thing over and over again, that he appears to be stuck in the past and doesn't want to move out of it and doesn't want to take on board anyone else's viewpoint. Of course he was born in Ireland, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) He might be listening. (laughs) Says Mary. Mm. Uh, Tom Tom Thomas from Delique says Jim Wells says you can't go and this is in, in relation to Rock Hall uh, yeah. Jim Wells says you can't come into someone else's property without permission he's wrong you can enter property without permission as long as you are not intent on causing criminal damage or intent in putting the fear into the owner and have reasonable excuse to do so in this case the Irish fishermen should fish away at Rock Hall it's owned by nobody says okay. Thomas yeah alright yeah uh... I don't think Jim Wells was buying the argument uh, that 800 years ago or whenever it was at this stage, uh, the British uh, entered Ireland without permission. Jim Wells is on at the moment, mm. say Seamus, when he rang in because he wasn't a bit happy. Oh, was he not? No, oh, and he says, because oh. he mustn't realise, and this is quite a broad mm. statement to make, that the Unionist people are the most dislikable people in the world. And I am saying this as an Irish Republican. Mm. I've worked all over the world, but even the British themselves don't seem to like them, he's, he's maintaining. Yeah. And he doesn't believe that Jim Wells is living in the real world at all. Right. OK. Well, I'm sure that there's very fine uh, members of the unionist community and I'm sure some of them are a great laugh. Louise uh, phoned in about Rock Hall and she wants to make a comment in relation to the discussion. She thinks the Scottish Scottish action recently has more to do with the oil in the seabed than the fish in the water. Mm. That's her thoughts on it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the fish in the water is worth quite a lot. David got in mm. touch and David feel, David, one question he wanted to ask, are the um, members of Parliament in the North still getting paid even though they're not doing their job? Yes, they have their pay reduced by £14,000. Uh, I think they're being paid in around £33,000 and I think that works out at about €40,000 a year. And he feels that if they are still getting paid, it's a disgrace and that maybe if they were docked their money, they'd be quicker to come back hmm, to work. <laughs> maybe so. Well, they've uh, had two cuts uh, which amounted to £14,000. That is a fair like point. That. Maybe mm. if you yeah. weren't getting any income, you yeah. might be more inclined to make yeah. sure there was a resolution. I think so. Uh, moving on. It's welfare. It's it's €40,000 in welfare because the state are, are paying people who mm. aren't in work, really. I know. It's a crazy yeah. situation, mm. isn't it? Really, yeah. when you mm. think about it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, moving then to your discussion... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
with Councillor P.O. Smith. A listener says this country is a disgrace. People talking about cannabis who know mm. nothing about it. It's okay for people to get drunk and not know what they did the night before. But for someone to use cannabis for health benefits, it's wrong. Alcohol only gives you a bad liver and makes you depressed. It's the older generation that's holding this country to ransom. Okay. Uh, Mike, anybody talking about legalising cannabis should state if they are using it or ever had used it. This is a very dangerous drug, so it's important to know where people are coming from, says Jack. All right. Uh, Well, uh, on that note, uh, let's go to Dundalk, uh, where drugs uh, have uh, resulted in much gangland crime. And we're joined uh, by Sinn Féin Councillor Rory O'Murku, who has been meeting uh, with uh, the Gardaí. Good morning to you, Rory. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, There were... uh, a number of things uh, relating to the gangland violence uh, which relates uh, to the drugs and a number of other serious incidents that you raised with the Gardaí. What have you been saying to them and what have they been saying to you? Well, yeah, no, I had a meeting with the Gardaí initially in relation to a specific issue with um, with residents and in fairness to the Gardaí that dealt with it, I think, very successfully. I then used the opportunity, had a follow-on conversation which I would have had previously around a number of incidents that have happened. We're talking, obviously, stabbings, petrol bomb attacks, shootings. And I think there's nobody across this county that doesn't realise what happened Saturday before last in Barrack Street where somebody was run over at 10 o'clock in the morning in broad daylight. Right, and you were speaking with uh, the superintendent, Jerry Curley, and also with the chief superintendent, Christy Mangan. Uh, what? No, I was, it was with... It was with uh, Jerry Curley. Oh, I beg your pardon. Okay. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think in the press release that I put out, I mentioned what uh, Christy Mangan had said in relation to the epidemic of cocaine use. That's right, yes. Okay. Uh, throughout the state, throughout the country. But you, you, you raised uh, this particular issue with uh, Jerry Curley, the superintendent. Uh, this is uh, the hit and run incident on Barrack Street. Uh, what did the superintendent have to say to you about that? The superintendent was incredibly clear that he said the community in in Dundalk need to stand up, need to provide the information. And that's realising how scared people are of this. But if the guards don't get the information, they can't take the action that's required. And we're leaving incredibly dangerous criminals on the street to do this again. And it's pure luck that somebody wasn't killed. And, And beyond that, at that time in the morning, Anyone could have been walking their dog, taking kids to football training. Anything could have happened. And are the Gardaí working on the theory that uh, this man was knocked down like this intentionally or, or, or not? Well, anybody that's seen this couldn't think anything else. They've mounted the footpath and they took an incredible run at, at the pedestrian. You know, From my point of view, I can't see anything other than there was an ad- attempt to kill. So I think the guards used the term, yeah, it's... Endangerment, purposeful endangerment. Okay, and any theory on what the motivation for it might have been? Well, there have been a number of attacks uh, in this town, um, and the belief is they stem from a criminal gang, and that people have fallen foul of, and action has been taken. There have probably been incidents of people, I think the term is calling others out on social media, and some of this could be a reaction to that. Now, obviously, I can't get into specifics, and all of this is hearsay at this mm, stage. Mm, mm. And what the Gardaí require are people to come forward who've got information uh, that well, is actionable. Are, I mean, that's hot-headed responses that you're talking about, but these aren't just hotheads. These are nutters, aren't they? Well, look, 
this is an already terrible situation. Yeah. See, mm. anybody that's going to go on social media and is going to threaten somebody back is endangering themselves and anybody around them or connected with them and anything else. It doesn't help. But what do you know about the man who was knocked down? Well, what I know about the man... About his condition, down. I mean. Um, well, my information is that he was seriously injured. Um, again, I'm. it's pure luck that the man survived. Mm. Life-changing injuries, though, or...? I, I'm not sure at this yeah. stage. What I heard were incredibly serious, yeah. and obviously it had to be very close to touch and go at, at, at points along the way. Mm. Uh, you bring with you injuries. you bring with you a, a message uh, from the superintendent to people living in Dundalk, uh, and uh, a call for people to stand together against this. No, in fairness to the superintendent, he said, um, "We're investigating this. We're putting whatever resources we have into it. But what we need is people who have information to come forward." He says. That's that's the key in this. And if, if if people don't come forward, we're literally surrendering the ground to these criminal gangs. And because these guys have been able to run for so long, they've been getting more brazen. And it's something that has to be stopped before this ends in absolute tragedy. And that could be anybody being killed because some of these incidents have involved attacks on even the wrong houses have been, abs- look at the times that these have occurred. As I say, I can't get over the fact that somebody did this at 10 o'clock in the morning mm. in a relatively, what could be a relatively busy part of town and just thought that they could get away with it. It's, it's beyond what they did. It's just, like I said before, utterly brazen. Okay. And we, we, we can't allow this to continue on. People no. are going to be killed or seriously injured. All right, and it's not good enough. We leave there. Thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Féin Councillor Rory O'Murku. Now, let's go back uh, to some more of your thoughts. Uh, you've uh, a few more calls I there. I have Marie. indeed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Edel mm-hmm. from Trim was listening to the interview with Pavla Tobin mm-hmm. and she feels that he's so right she, in relation to the pressure on commuters because of poor transport in the area. She says mm. that the bus service at times cannot be relied upon, that the bus can be late. And she says that in in Meath, so many people just sleep here, Michael. They don't get the chance to do much living or much else in the community because of the amount of time that they spend mm. on the road going in and out to Dublin. And she agrees that more jobs would definitely provide hmm. some sort of respite because people would be able to work in their local areas. Okay, uh, just going back uh, to a call earlier on uh, from somebody who said uh, that unionists are disliked, uh, as I say, I'm sure there's an awful lot of good unionists uh, uh, and uh, like any community uh, there's all sorts uh, but uh, I think they were disliked in America when they first arrived in America in the 1800s uh, and uh, of course uh, having an allegiance to King William uh, the Americans called them Billies. Uh, And then the unionists who were known as Billies uh, tended to move up the hills to live up in the hills and they became known as hillbillies. Uh, So if you ever hear Americans talk uh, about hillbillies, it's a, a derogatory term that's used about Ulster unionists living in America. There you go. You learn something new every day, Michael. All right. Uh, we leave it there for the moment. Right. If people want to make comments uh, uh, in addition to what we've already been hearing, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715 958.
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we're going to talk about Rock All with Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD and a party spokesperson on sport. Good morning to you Imelda Munster and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Before we talk about Rock All though, I'd like to talk to you about sport and the revelation in the Sunday Times yesterday that Shane Ross, the Minister for Sport, asked John Delaney for tickets to go to see Manchester United play Ajax in Sweden back in 2017. This is truly shocking stuff, isn't it? I, I mean, were you surprised that Shane Ross would be interested in going to a football match? Well, well, it's, I mean, it's, you know, a minister of sport shouldn't put, certainly shouldn't put himself in that position. You know, what it does first is it, it, it you know, it puts him in a position that could be seen, you know, if gener- a type of thing, taking those tickets or requesting them in the mm. first instance, you know, t- means like gaining a favour or generating a favour or support, but particularly in line with all that was going on with the FAI and all the questions around good governance and that it was mm. foolish, let me say that, it was foolish for a minister or any public representative to leave themselves, put themselves in that position. You know, it would put mm. them under a compliment, you know, yeah. particularly when you can access tickets, you know, through the normal channel, Ticketmaster or clubs. So there's no need for politicians yeah. to be either involved or to be intervening or requesting tickets. Ah, but he must have needed to go for some reason. I mean, it's 90 minutes a game, and that'd be a very long day for Shane Ross. I don't think he's any interest in football, does he? I don't know, to be honest. It wouldn't be fair for me to say whether or not he has. But certainly, I mean, he should know better. As long as he's a politician, you know, he should Mm. know better that the position he holds as minister. Okay, I'm being facetious, obviously. Is it... All of that, you know, and... Yeah, no, and I am being facetious, obviously. Is it a real issue? Is it something that you're going to raise with him? Well, look, it's certainly something because there's no doubt it was a practice that went on um, for for years. And now, whether or not it it happened just under John Delaney's, Mm. you know, um, as CEO, whether it just happened under his term, I don't know. But we have Sports Ireland coming in to the committee next week mm. or the week after, I think, and we're going to ask some questions because um, there was something I raised the week before last with um, on Promise Ledge with the government that um, I had been told that the all bar one of the exist the current FAI board, the old board, uh, all bar one were planning on putting themselves forward for re-election. Mm. You know, so that in itself sends uh, warning signals everywhere, you know, that if this is the case, because I remember Shane Ross saying to us at that transport committee when we had the FAI in, that it was the beginning of the end of the old FAI. But sure, if those rumours about the new board are true, then it, it looks like the new FAI board could look identical to the old one. And that's something we just they can't be tolerated. Like, it just can't be tolerated that there's, you know, they're given the two fingers like that, you know, so it's all of those questions and maybe looking at um, Sports Ireland, if we can from a practical sense in the committee ask them, could they look at maybe a policy around um, this sort of thing with these tickets, you know, and Mm. kind of, you know, banning um, politicians from going through those channels and let them go through the normal, you know, ticket masters at clubs like every other Joe yeah. or, or, or have a specific you know. channel that is somehow regulated or is yeah, transparent yeah, or whatever. Like that, okay. just to yeah. stop that yeah. sort of practice. All right, uh, let's talk about Rock All if we can. It's a, a remarkable story. Uh, would you support the idea of uh, sending Irish Navy vessels out to Rock All to make sure that Irish fishermen who are 
fishing perfectly legally uh, within uh, the proximity of Rockall, that 12 nautical miles that the Scottish are, are talking about, uh, to make sure that they're not uh, arrested by foreign forces. Well, the first priority here would be for the government um, to defend the interests of the, the Irish fishing community. But while they're doing that, we could end up with Irish fishermen being arrested for doing their job. Well, uh, would you support yeah. the idea of sending Irish Navy vessels out to Rockall uh, because the Scottish are sending their Navy vessels out? Well, certainly if all diplomatic avenues fail, you know, and the Scottish authorities are, as, they, as they've said, you know, they've threatened to, to go, mm. out, go on board the fishing, then as a, as a last resort, but certainly we should intensify... Um, but if the boats go out to Rockall from Scotland... Do, yeah, as a last resort. As, yeah, as, was, as, as, as the Scottish Navy mm. is leaving for Rockall, should we be deploying Irish Navy vessels? Well, I think at that point, if all diplomatic um, avenues have failed, and certainly our Sea Fisheries Protection Agency vessels need to protect Irish fishermen and their livelihoods. So at that stage, but as a last resort, we should try all diplomatic avenues first. But we have to protect Irish fishermen and Irish fisheries and their livelihoods. Mm. You know, all of that has to be protected. So certainly, if all diplomatic avenues... And what have they shot at us? Well, I mean, there's planning on going on on board, you know, and um, they. No, what, what, what if what if the Scottish Navy shot at the Irish Navy? Well, I can't imagine they'd choose at us. Well, if we were in uh, the vessels, if we were invading British territory, uh, as uh, they might claim, uh, perhaps they would. Well, you see, the Irish government and the people of Ireland have never recognised. Um, Rockall as, as British territory has yes. always been defeated, and that's that, that's you know, that's and that's why I asked you the first question that I asked you because as far as we're concerned the Irish fishermen are acting perfectly legally uh, and we have been told that they're going to be arrested their boats are going to be taken off them they might have to go to court God knows they could be sent to prison for for working uh, and if they're going to send the Scottish Navy out to do that to Irish fishermen, surely we should be sending the Irish Navy out. Oh, yes, uh, and if we do that, and the, it's that deemed that we're invading British territory, God knows what will happen. No, but you see, Ireland, we're protected. Ireland's position is that the waters around Rockall are part of the European Union waters under the Common Fisheries Policy. So we're protected because the principle of equal access for the vessels of all EU member state supplies there. So we have every right to fish there under EU common fish. But that's the dispute. It's disputed territory. I mean, they're making a claim on it. It's not a valid claim, it would seem, to all intents and purposes, but they're making the claim on it and that makes it a a disputed territory. I mean, if what you were saying was as simple and straightforward as you presented, well, then there'd be no grounds for them to arrest the fishermen. Well, I mean, Irish fishermen have been fishing there for decades, you know, and at no stage did... um, the British ever come out mm. and enforce a 12-mile exclusion mm. zone around Rockall. And you have EU common fisheries law there to protect us as well. Mm. But certainly if they're playing hardball, yeah. then we would have to, we would definitely have to consider, you know, uh, sending our Sea Fisheries Protection Agency well, sh- to protect should we, our fishermen and their Should we do whatever it takes to stop, to prevent a situation where Irish men are in court for illegally fishing near Rockall? Well, you see, you have the British and the Scottish authorities all of a sudden coming out of the blue with this, you mm. know, and they're obviously looking to press and play hardball with it. Mm. So we, we too should intensify, as I said, um, interaction with the British and Scottish government to ensure that this doesn't happen. But we've also the protection under EU law. And I know what you're saying, it's mm. disputed territory, but we have that 
um, EU protection under the Common Fisheries mm. Law, and that's, that should help to protect us. But certainly the Irish government need to intensify um, discussions. Well, under, under international laws, I was reading out earlier on from the Irish Times, nobody can make claim to Rockall because it's not habitable uh, and you can't have any life or business on that island. So it, nobody can make a, a claim to it under international law, but yes. the British are. The rock itself is un, uninhabitable, mm. all right. You know, and I think what, what they could be looking at here, you know, it's, it's Scottish government in particular, the Scottish authorities, there's, there was always been rich fishing grounds around Rock all, you know, and that's that's what they're at mm. now. It's it's more of a greed grab nearly than anything else. Like, but uh, we have every right to fish there, and the government needs to take whatever me- measures necessary, if all diplomatic. But if they keep going, space, you 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 can actually visualise a standoff between the Irish Navy and the Scottish Navy. Yeah, well, if if that's if if it comes to that, and let's hope it doesn't come to that, but if it comes to that. You know, the EU is going to have to step in in relation to EU common fisheries law. That's that's you know that's there as our protection that we have a right, every right mm. to fish there, well, every right. For well, decades, we have been doing, and it's it's Irish fishermen and their livelihood. What will it have to do with the EU after October? Well, I mean, this it's happening now. So yeah. as long as we have that protection, but isn't it ironic too that sixty percent of Scotland voted to remain, you know, and mm. here's the Scottish authorities coming out with this sort of nonsense, you know. I mean, if you look, if you look at Rockall, um, it's but it's this sort of nonsense that starts wars, isn't it? I mean, if you're talking about a situation where you have Irish Navy vessels looking at Scottish Navy vessels, and the Scottish are saying you're invading Britain, mm. uh, then there has to be a consequence. I mean, there has where's to be it? a response. Where's it? Because we've never recognised their claim to rock all, yeah. you know, and mm. the EU law is there as EU... Um, well, well, a lot of us have never recognised their claim to the six counties either. Sorry? I say a lot of us have never recognised their claim to the six counties either. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the I think it was, was it in the early 70s, as far as I can remember, um, the British laid claim to... to uh, Rock all. 1955. Uh, there was a, a tricolour uh, on it, I think, in 75. Yeah, yeah they, mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. Britain had passed something in, in 70, 1972. Mm. Um, but they had never, between then and now, and even for decades that Irish fishermen have been fishing in those waters, they've never uh, tried to enforce mm. an exclusion zone. And we have to, we have to fight that tooth and nail. Mm. But uh, they have more than they claim to it. I think they've legislated in respect of it ever since uh, the Navy were there in the 50s. I think sometime during the 60s they yeah, introduced some I mean, legislation. It's, it's disputed territory and we've never, mm. we've never recognised that. Yeah, and, 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 the fishing, uh, and the fishing waters uh, uh, are, are uh, something that the Irish say we're entitled to fish in, the British say they're entitled to fish in, the Finns, Finland, uh, and the Danes, Denmark, all lay claim to fishing rights in that territory, and that's an ongoing conversation. Yeah, and I mean, well, if you look at the Scottish authorities, and the, I mean, their actions are totally unwarranted, you know, and the hostile statements, you know, and mm. the threat of action, it's, you know, and when you consider that they had signed up to the EU common fishery policy themselves, and then it said that they wanted to remain in the European Union, mm. you know, it's, it's bizarre, in the very, to say the very least, but certainly the Irish government have to do absolutely everything to protect uh, Irish fishermen and their livelihood. Mm. And of course... And, it, it, right it, to fish there. And of course it's closer, the rock itself is closer to Ireland than it is to yeah, Scotland. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I 
think I remember from the song 400 Miles from Donegal. <laughs> okay. That song, Rock On, Rock All, I think was. But certainly the, the Irish government need to, you know, if, if all diplomatic avenues fail, then we certainly need to, to um, defend our fishing rights in those waters. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Ken Corla, Sean O'Freel, told uh, the Week in Politics yesterday that he supports gender quotas uh, for the local elections. And today, the Women for Election Group is uh, to make a fund of €35,000 available to help see women elected. Uh, this is what they're calling a crowdfunding plan for female candidates. It follows uh, the local elections, obviously, and an increase in the number of women who have taken up council seats. It's now 24% of uh, the seats are held by females. And this follows a meeting which was held by the National Women's Council of Ireland last week uh, to take a look at why some women are successful and others aren't in putting their names forward for election. One of uh, the successful females locally in in uh, the last uh, council elections was Annie Hoey, Annie Hoey, I beg your pardon, who took a seat for the Labour Party on Meath County Council, and she's on the line. And a very good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us, Annie. Congratulations, by the way, on being elected first time uh, as a uh, councillor. Uh, great achievement for you. And it seems uh, it's harder for women to get elected than it is for men. Why is that the case, do you think? Well, I mean, there's lots of research done on this and I mean the, the five areas have been identified they call them the five C's um, and these are culture, cash, confidence candidate selection and childcare and these are seen as being the five biggest barriers to women either getting themselves onto the ticket or then indeed getting themselves elected um, and there are lots of different ways all of these can be tackled um, you know, you know childcare is obviously an issue that mm. everyone talks about and it's you know try running a, an expensive election campaign while also trying to be able to pay for childcare. And that's just one example, but particularly around candidate selection, and that's where things like gender quotas come in, where the candidate selection system is quite hard to navigate, actually, in in, in the current makeup of, of how it's done. Mm. And uh, quite often uh, you'll have parties run multiple candidates. Uh, this is one of uh, the points the Women for Election Group are making uh, and all of them will be men and that comes down to uh, getting your name on the ticket in the first place. Did you uh, see the Keon Corla's interview? I mean, he made some interesting points about a, a crash uh, available to members of Leinster House uh, and uh, he was also talking about breastfeeding and that uh, it should be a breastfeeding friendly place. Indeed, he was suggesting that uh, some female TDs may breastfeed in the chamber. Yeah, and that's, this is really, really positive news to hear that, that our places of a public office are going to be more accessible for, for women or for parents full stop, and I think that's very important. But of course, there's no maternity leave. There's no maternity leave um, in any of our you know, local elections, Shannon or up in the chamber, there's no way um, for someone to be able to take that time. I mean, it, it, you just simply have to kind of disappear for a while. Well, that was probably. an interesting part of his interview as well. He was saying that would take a, a constitutional referendum mm-hmm. and that you'd have to amend the constitution because the constitution states that you must be present to cast your vote. So you couldn't do it remotely. Yeah, I mean, it seems always astonishing that we think uh, that somehow people are going to have children after we decide that we're going to have some sort of de- representative dem- democratic system and at no point no one thought perhaps um, at some point parenting or childcare might be 
uh, considered mm. in all of this. And it just tells you how when we were building our system, they were all very male-focused, male-dominated, and, and didn't really expect, I suppose, women to start playing a role in it, as, as we are now doing quite well, I think. But if a, a woman is elected to the national parliament, uh, should the husband not look after the child? I mean, is it an appropriate time to be having children uh, if you're there to represent people and how the country has been run? I, well, I, I would take great umbrage at the idea that there is appropriate and inappropriate. You know, people put themselves forward for office, and that shouldn't mean that your entire life ceases to exist. Uh, that's like saying one should be available 24 hours a day uh, at all hours and every mm. hour. But this, this, this no, isn't normal business. I mean, people won't elect you to have a baby. They'll elect you to pass laws uh, and to improve their lives, won't they? Well, I think if someone... I, I think there'll be a lot of people who'd be quite appalled at the thought that someone was uh, changing their life plans or not, or not continuing on living a full life. I'm not going to put my life on hold over the next five years. I don't know what the next five years mm. is going to look like. But two me. people have a baby. I mean, that comes back to the point. If you decide to put yourself forward for office, should you not get him to look after the children? Well, you should, there should be options for everyone to be able to... And, and this isn't about... You know, we can have a conversation about mm. child care, which is one part of it, but we, we simply can't negate the fact that uh, more often than not, may I say, that it's the women who have to carry the child for the nine months and do need time to mm. recover afterwards. I mean, we mm. can't, we simply can't jump around that fact. So, I mean, we can have conversations about childcare. Of course, it needs childcare, more creches, uh, affordable childcare. My God, I'm, my my mind is reeling at the prospect of how much it's going to cost mm. to have a family. And um, all of these things need to be dealt with. But I mean, there is the, the rather practical part of it, which is yeah. at some point, someone's going to have to step away for a couple of weeks to physically have the child. Mm. Uh, you were at that National Women's Council uh, meeting last week, as was uh, the Minister for Local Government, John Paul Phelan. He was asking, why is it uh, that fewer women are elected than stand? Well, I mean, if you look at the figures, and I have them in front of me here of all the different parties, the parties who ran, you know, 40% plus of women elected 40% plus of their, you know, of their elected candidates were women. So the Labour Party, we ran 41% women. 42% of our councillors are women. If you look at some of the other parties, Green mm. Party, they ran 44% women, 41% elected. OK, well, uh, there's something skewed because 28% of the candidates were female uh, and 237 of uh, the councillors are female. So there's uh, a huge difference there, a difference of, uh, what, uh, 4% or thereabouts, a little more than 4%. Yeah, and you need to look at some, I think, of the bigger parties um, who were running... You know, I mean, only 80% of the independents were women, 80% of them that were elected then were women. Fianna Fáil ran 22% of their candidates women, and only 18% of their, their elected councillors are women. Fianna Gael ran 29% and only 24%. So if you don't put women on the ticket, then should they can't be elected. And, hmm. um, you know, if you don't put that commitment, you know, I saw across the country, um, and sometimes you can't have luck, you can't pluck candidates out of thin air. Hmm. But, I mean, I saw a, a number of um, party slates, all male candidates mm. and you know and I would argue like we worked really really hard the Labour Party to ensure and um, that we got a representative balance that we did our very best to provide opportunities and training to women who wanted to run and um, we tried to have you know we had diverse candidates and um, uh, but it takes commitment and then all of the parties uh, who you know the, the smaller than the lesser mm. a lot of them seem to be more left-leaning parties who had these higher numbers of women running we all worked very hard you can't just pluck people out of thin air. We knew about the five, the five C's I mentioned earlier that were 
were challenges for women to running for election. And, and we put forward ways to support women in, in tackling some of those barriers. We will you, will, will, will you, will, will you uh, run in the next general election? Well, I'm only just coming off the back of this one. Uh, I know, uh, but you're, you're climbing a political ladder and uh, don't tell me otherwise. I mean, you were a president of USI and like many before you who held that position, uh, they'd have seen it as a stepping stone into politics. You've taken one step now to local authority level and congratulations on taking your council seat. Uh, do you have a, 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 an eye on the national parliament? Um, well, I've always, and I, I remember when I spoke with you when I was president of USI and I said I wasn't ruling out anything. Um, uh, when you asked me whether I had political ambitions and I said I wasn't going to rule anything out and I'm not going to rule anything out now either I'm going to enjoy being a councillor I'm going mm. to try and get my feet under the table there and figure out what's what uh, it was a very short campaign four weeks campaign straight in straight out and mm. um, so I'm going to take my time and figure out what's going on and I am going to look of course at the lay of the land and what is you know, politically mm. astute for me to do. Okay, we'll take, we'll, we'll take that as a very definite yes. Uh, what about... Take that as a deep consideration. What, what about climbing uh, up uh, the ranks of the Labour Party? Well, tell, tell us your long-term ambitions, in other words. Uh, do, you, do you want to be president? Do you want to be leader of the Labour Party? Do you want to be a TD? Do you want to be a senator? Do you want to go to Europe? Uh, because I have a feeling that Annie Howie is an ambitious young person. I am ambitious. I, I I look around and I see where I think I can best use my skill sets and my talents. And at the moment, I saw that over on Mead County Council to have a young person with my kind of activist background. I think uh, that skill set is very transferable into national politics as well. So I'm going to, of course, be looking around. And I would like to, I, I'm really enjoying currently being a public representative. Do you know what it is, Annie? I'd like to stay in it, I think. Do, do, do you know what it is, Annie? And I, and I really mean this, and I mean it as a compliment. You've fudged that question so well, I think you're going to go far. <laughs> That's a good thing, then. <laughs> but if I'm right uh, in my assumption that you are uh, ambitious uh, politically and that uh, you want to go uh, further than where you are at the moment, but do, do, do you see any obstacles uh, to doing that because of your gender? I mean, I, I will, I suppose, let's take childcare, for example. You know, I'm, mm. I'm only 30 years old. I'm getting married next year. I don't know if I want to have a family. Um, but I am thinking about how something like that would impact my political career. And that's a very genuine thing. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about the cost of putting yourself forward for national election. Do you know, it seems a very far away hope that I'll be able to, you know, even get myself onto the property ladder. Okay, but that that that, that wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with your gender, to uh, to, to do with being a, a woman. Uh, I suppose everybody faces the same cost. Childcare, I think maybe you could argue that, but uh, undoubtedly it is a, a problem, as you say, because of uh, how uh, our culture is shaped. Are, are there any other issues? Uh, do you feel uh, that at times uh, you may be left out of conversations or uh, that people are, are selected because of the lifestyle they lead, that they go to the golf club or the gar club or whatever it is? Um, I don't. I mean, I can, I can certainly see I have uh, women counterparts in some other parties who I can see... Um, that they are struggling to get themselves in. And I haven't, I'm, I mean, I'm a fairly rambunctious, ambitious person. I tend to elbow my way into the spaces that I want to get into. But that is not saying that, other, you know, not, that's not to say that that, that is expected of everyone. Mm. Um, I don't, I feel, I suppose my biggest, my, and I genuinely think about it, my biggest concern is about whether or not I want to have a family. If I go to take those couple of months off, I mean, I, you know, in the next couple of years, how is that going to impact my political career? Mm. If I'm seen um, taking myself off the doors for a couple of months or if I'm seen taking some time 
to recover after having a family. I do think about how is that going to impact that. And it makes me a little bit sad that something that we've been doing since the beginning of time, which is having families, um, could potentially have an adverse effect on my ambitions mm-hmm. as a as a this politician. Okay, uh, ju- just to conclude, uh, I take it you agree with introducing gender quotas uh, for local elections. Uh, they're in place already uh, for national elections, uh, but uh, if so, should they be temporary uh, and uh, at what rate? I think gender quotas are always something that should be temporarily introduced. Uh, a lot of places that they were introduced, they tend to have them for two or three cycles, then they remove them and the, the pattern continues. Do you know what I mean? The, the pattern of the women getting elected. People don't even notice that they've been removed. They see that in Sweden and other countries. Um, so I do think they should be introduced possibly for two or three cycles and then see. Um, but we have to address all of the other issues as well about how parties are selecting candidates, mm. supporting women, seeing themselves as being a part of the political system. It's not an easy place to work. It's not a very sometimes. Mm. But I, I think they say about 30% of seats should be filled by women. Would that be your feeling it? Absolutely, and I would love to see someday where we get to proper parity between the representative. And that that proper parity, I mean, also in representation from different communities. Mm. You know, we have a large migrant community here in Ireland. I'd like to show um, people who are, you know, we call new Irish who have been living here, um, traveller women, people of, Mm. you know, I think we'd really like to see a a proper diverse representation in our different public representative houses. Very good. We leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us this morning, Labour Party Councillor Annie Hoey. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Irish Water wants uh, to charge some people 185. That's one euro 85 for every thousand litres of water they use above a certain threshold and uh, the same uh, amount uh, for uh, what is uh, used in wastewater. Uh, there'd be a cap of 250 euro on both. And it means that some 70,000 households in this country could be paying water charges of up to 500 euro from next year. This is according to an article by Harry McGee in the Irish Times today. Let's talk about this with uh, Fine Gael councillor in Meath, Gerry O'Connor and Stephen McKee, who's a Fianna Fáil councillor in Meath. Good morning to both of you and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme this morning. I suppose, Gerry O'Connor, this is in line with the deal Fine Gael struck with Fianna Fáil. Well, it's in line. I think it, was with, it went through. Uh, all parties, I think, supported it. It was effectively an amendment because uh, the advice from the Attorney General was that the European Water Framework Directive, uh, if, we, if water charges were completely abolished, uh, we wouldn't be in compliance with that. It would face fines. Uh, the European Water Framework Directive looks at charging uh, for excess water as a water conservation measure. And, and the one thing I would point out about this, while there is 70,000 uh, people potentially, as per Harry McGee, leaks account for a huge majority of this excess usage. And using the force fix for free uh, measure, once it's identified, uh, w- will alleviate an awful lot of these charges coming out. The first thing I, un- I understand mm-hmm. is that they will get a notification, a call to action notification, to say, look, your house seems to be uh, using excess water. Uh, it'll be investigated. If it's a case that uh, it can be resolved, it will be resolved. And I have numerous cases out here in Dunshockland and, and also my own brother's house in, 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 mm-hmm. in Santry where this did happen and there was no cost to the person using the water because they weren't even aware of it. Now, this, this isn't something new with Irish water. Mead County Council would have done similar over the years if they seen... Uh, They'd have charged you €500. Euro. They would have told you to get a fix. Mm. Uh, would they, they have would charged have you €500? Euro? 
No, but it would no, cost no. you possibly 500 euro to get a fix. Mm. But it's, it's 500 euro if it's wastewater and... Uh, no, but this is a, a bill you'd get. This is water charges no, this, of 500 it, 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 euro but, every year. But, uh, but just, just on that, uh, Michael, it's three, the, 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 the allowance per household is 1.7 times the average household current use is 345 mm. litres, yeah. which is 587 litres. Okay. Uh, Stephen McKee, uh, there's 1.6 million households, I think, in the country, because 70,000 sounds a, a lot, but uh, in that context, it, it really is a small amount of people who would have to pay the water charges. Do you think that, uh, as time goes on, that more people will have to pay water charges and that €500 Euro, uh, is only a starting point and that that will increase? Well, I certainly hope not, uh, Michael. But, I mean, 76,000 in, in the overall figure might seem small. It's a huge amount of households, but but, you know, as, as Jerry has mentioned there, there is a free first fix, fix policy by Irish Water. I, I, I think it's going to be very, a very small amount of people affected by this. And really what we're, we're talking about here, mm. Michael, is willful wastage of water. Um, you know, there's already a very generous allowance there already, 213,000 mm. uh, litres per family. Um, there's going to be significant lead-in time to allow people, you know, if there is uh, leakages, and, and it's, that's a particular problem in, in, in the whole system, mm. is that people will be able to report Irish water, will fix it for free. But would you like to see um, more people, because Barry Cowan, I think, wrote this to a large uh, degree, would you like to see more people charged and charged more? No, no, I think, I think, the, I mean, this, this, this is part of the report on the future funding of domestic um, water to 2017. All parties agree to it. Mm. And I think it, it, it's fair enough. I mean, it, it's, it's based on, on the principle of the polluter pays. I mean, if there is a problem in the system, people are entitled to get it fixed for free. Um, we're only talking about a very, very small number of people. Who, who, but there, who there isn't a problem. I mean, it just every time it, it leaks out the pipes or whatever, it just falls out of the sky again, doesn't it? No, but look, it, it's not as simple as that. You know, there is a cost to, to bringing water to people's homes. Anybody who does have a problem in terms of, of leakage of water to their homes will have that repaired for free from Irish Water. And um, we're talking about a very, very small number of people who willfully waste money. Now, I don't know anyone who willfully wastes water well, it, to the extent it, that they're talking about. So, I, I it's storing I, I, enough. It has nothing to do with turning on a machine to get the water into your house. Uh, once you've got water coming in, if they've enough water, uh, well, then there's no cost to it, no additional cost, and it no, keeps it no. keeps it keeps falling out of the sky. Yeah, but I mean, it's not as simple as there is a cost of bringing water into people's mm. homes, uh, Michael. And look, there is a very generous allowance there. I don't think, I think, um, you know, the seventy-six thousand figure mm. is, is 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 maybe it's a bit of scaremongering there. Um, there, there, there is there is a system in place where people can get their pipes uh, leakages fixed. There's a generous, a very generous allowance of water. It, it's based on, and I think it's very important, the polluter pays principle. Jerry, Jerry O'Connor, if I can go back to Jerry, just because our time is yeah. running out. Jerry O'Connor, uh, I suppose here we are talking about water charge. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say you're glad yeah. the election is over. <laughs> well, it didn't come up at the door for that way. <laughs> no, that's what I mean. <laughs> if the election was tomorrow or her next month, I think it might come up at the door, would it? No, to be honest, I think there's been a change out there uh, in, in people I'm talking to and people who are under the door. Because people realise with the summer we had last year in, in South East Mead and the, the water outages that we had in Rathout and Ashbourne and, and uh, Drogheda, people realise that investment has to be put into the water services. And someone has to pay for whether it's paid for directly by, by tax yeah. or whether it's paid for through this body, which is set up because we couldn't borrow off the balance sheet. This is why this was set up all those years ago. Uh, now, we've gotten to a situation... Because now, we get uh, a good summer every 40 years, is it? Well, uh, it's climate change, isn't it? Uh, and as, as Stephen said... Well, then we need to build bigger reservoirs. I mean, they don't have this problem in Portugal or Spain or... 
do they? No, if you have, I mean, in, in the area I mentioned, you've got 25 kilometres of, of uh, what you call it, uh, pipes that mm. are over 50 to 60 years old. And with land movement, this this is a problem. We have on average from Stilene down to South East Mead, mm. we have an average of five outages per annum. And we have had for the last 15 years. Mm. It has to be it has to be sorted. And that takes money. And at the time when Irish water was set up, the trike were, were just gone. The country was bust. We couldn't borrow off the balance sheet. So we have to set up a different mechanism. Yeah. Well, it's the, it's I think but what, what about the millions of euro that they collect from this? 70,000 times 500. Uh, would you like to see that spent on fixing the pipe, Stephen McKee? Absolutely. And I think what, what's, what's, um, what, uh, what's very important to, rec- to, re- to, to re- remind your listeners is that the funding for water services will continue to be paid for directly or taxation and the water charges aren't coming back. I mean, this was something that was agreed upon. Oh, no, this is a bill. This is a bill if you... If you well, it's, it's, it's a willful waste, a waste of water. And it, well, it's, well, yeah, it's so water it's charges. It's a couple of years ago. But well, I think no. what's even more no, worrying... No, no, no. It's water charges. You're being charged. When you get a bill, you have to pay the bill, and that's the charge. Well, there's a charge for willful waste beyond yeah, a certain what, amount of water. What, what, you know? what, 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 it's, what, it's a very high level. Whatever way you want to put it, well, it's, it's, but it's, it's still it's, water charges. Well, it's not water charges by the back door, if that's what you're insinuating, because there's a very high level. Oh, no, I'm not, I'm, not insinua- I'm not insinuating that. I'm saying it very clearly. It's water charges by the back door. Well, it, it'll only be affect a very, very small number of people who are willfully wasting water. I think what's even more worrying this morning is the story about the raw sewage that's flowing into waterways every day. There's okay. an EPA report. Well, maybe that's why we need to bring back water charges. It seems as though they are coming back. Irish water well, gets its way anyway. I have to leave it there, Stephen. I'm sorry, I'm out of time. But thank you indeed for your time and for joining us this morning. Fianna Fáil Councillor Stephen McKee and Fine Gael Councillor Gerry O'Connor bring our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.